You're listening to the 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. Folio podcast, a podcast about Shakespeare productions, modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the new film of Macbeth, directed by Justin Kurzel, which uh, stars Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Today, we have two guests, Connor Joel. Uh, hey, I, I'm Connor Joel. I'm a library science student interested in how the internet shapes our relationships to our culture, our texts our enthusiasms, and ourselves. I make pie and coffee in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and occasionally copy edit The Seventh Row. And we also have Laura. Hi, um, my name is Laura Ann Harris, and I'm a theater artist, playwright, director, solo performer, improviser. Super and talented. I'm, I'm a contributor for uh, Seventh Row. And I'm your host, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row and a film and theater critic. So a little bit of background, I guess, on this production. It's certainly a pared-down version of the text, and the film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May, and it's been getting kind of really polarizing reactions from people. The less you know the text, it seems, the more likely you are to be stunned by it, because the visuals are pretty amazing. and the more you know the text, or at least your Shakespeare, the more likely you are to have, well, to really hate things about it. And it's a question of whether that makes you hate it entirely, like previous guests, David Larson and M.A. Rowe, or whether you like it anyway, even though there are things you hate about it, or really don't like about it. Um, so we'll, We'll start, we'll, we'll be talking about that today. Now, so this is the first film that's been made of Macbeth since Roman Polanski's film, which is 40 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. though there have been a lot of recordings of play productions of it. So most recently there was the, uh, film of the Royal Shakespeare Company's production directed by Rupert Gould, which starred Patrick Stewart which was a stage production. And then they kind of sort of changed it a little bit for film and shot it on a set. There is also a film in Australia made in 2006, which was kind of a modernized version. And they've also done recordings of several other productions. Probably the most famous one would be Trevor Nunn's production, which starred Ian McKellen as Macbeth and Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth. But this is really the first film of the play that was intended as a film. And actually none of these actors were in a production together, played it on stage before shooting the film since, yeah, 1971, which was Polanski's film. They did apparently rehearse for three months before doing it. I have no idea what the hell they did for three months, but we will discuss, we will ponder that as we get into it. 
So I think we're going to just sort of start at the beginning of the play and talk about where it starts and get into various topics from there. So I know when the, when the film opens, there are certain liberties taken because it opens on a dead child who is the child of the Macbeths. And we're at his funeral and Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are grieving compared with, say, in the text where Lady Macbeth doesn't even show up until I think act two. And she isn't even mentioned until something like scene five of act one. And we actually start off in the battle and there's a lot about Macbeth and Macbeth's achievements. And then he kind of says, Oh, by the way, about my wife. And you go, Oh, he's married. And that's the first time you hear about them. So it's definitely framing it in a different way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was a, a direct departure from the original, mm-hmm. from the original text. I mean, I saw an interview with the director saying that this, this sort of humanized Macbeth and Lady Macbeth a bit more. The death of the child, you can kind of understand their motivations throughout the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the approach he wanted to take with it to have a more modern approach rather than it just be about the ambition that there's something directly behind it, moving them forward, mm-hmm. which anyway, we'll get more into that and whether or not that works, but I, it certainly did help it be more naturalistic and ground the characters a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know if I love that choice, but they did play it all the way through several times. Yeah. Yeah. I think that prologue, definitely helped set the tone for the film as like a de- like you were saying a departure from what i what i think of as a more classically shakespearean structure to a tragedy mm-hmm. where you're introduced to the hero and his his personality and that like that hamartia the fatal flaw which mm-hmm. um as you said in in most productions of the play like that that would be connected to Macbeth's ambition and especially like the ways that leaves him vulnerable to manipulation by spiritual forces and also by forces within his marriage but instead we open with this um very somber funeral which gives us sort of a very different feeling about the characters whose actions we're about to watch for the next couple hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it gives it this very big framing around grief and depression. And I, it seems to me anyway that if you were to say, like, what's Macbeth's fatal flaw or driving force? It's not so much ambition, but, like, depression. And even yes. more than that, it's just the total numbness that comes with depression. Like, the reason he can just go kill Duncan, like, really brutally is because he just has stopped having the ability to care. Uh, except the only thing he really cares about is his wife, and they're torn apart by grief in that first scene where they're not really connecting, even though they're both grieving. And the whole plot is sort of like a last, almost like a last-ditch attempt to save their marriage and or just give them something to do with their time. Yeah, and definitely, um, if they want to modernize this film and this story... That is a good way to do it because, I mean, mental health is still is such a, a big part of our culture right now. Mm-hmm. And, and it could have been a way to ground it and, and uh, to modernize it 
yeah. for a contemporary audience and, and, and bring in new viewers who can connect with it in a different way. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of interesting, the sort of idea of like trying to diagnose your characters, because that's something that Sam Mendes did a production of King Lear a couple of years ago with Simon Russell Beale. And they, they sort of based that around the idea that Lear had Louis body dementia. Wow. Which okay. I think like oh. Simon mm. Russell Beale's nephew or something or other was a doctor and they found a paper where somebody actually wrote a paper about how Lear has the symptoms of Louis body dementia. And so they actually based a lot of the performance around that. And he used a lot of like his physical tics were in line with what would happen to like your body under Louis body dementia and what would happen to your mind. And it actually made a lot of sense for what goes on in the play. And so that was sort of an interesting interpretation. And then that seems to be a similar kind of thing going on here. I know I read uh, reports of a can interview that Fassbender gave where he discussed the influence of post-traumatic stress on his and Kersel's conception of the character, like referencing battle trauma and like the experiences of soldiers returning from Iraq and mm-hmm. Afghanistan, which is a definitely, a, definitely a different and more contemporary take mm-hmm. on yes. Macbeth. And I'm yeah. not sure that it entirely succeeds, but we can, no. we can maybe get to that <laughs> later more. Yeah. So I guess the other thing that we can kind of note is that's important in that first scene is it kind of sets the play up for where it's, when it's set. And I know you guys yeah. have some theories about when it might be set. Yeah, you can, uh, you can go first with that. Uh, Cause I think you might be a little bit more accurate on the setting in terms of the year. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was, when I, when I first viewed this play, there, that first scene definitely has a very, um, pagan feeling mm-hmm. to it, very wild, sort of the, sort of the idea of Scots on the Heather that you might get from, like, almost, almost an Arthurian feel, mm-hmm. I would say. Like, you have the, the funeral pyre and the placing of, like, Quranic rocks over the eyes of the child, which mm-hmm. we later see happen again with Duncan. And so, like, there's the, there's this very brutal pagan quality to it that sort of contrasts later on with some of the interesting Christian imagery that they play with. So you have the feeling that this is a world that is not entirely bound in yet by any kind of convention mm-hmm. or institution and so kind of i guess kersel's ritual violence that comes like recurs throughout the play kind of uh gives us a setting that feels feels very influenced by like the way that we conceive of the pagan north right now with uh like in relation to george r R. martin's a song of ice and fire like you've got those crazy crazy tree worshipers up in the north and then down in the south you have people in their chapels sort of a similar it felt felt like a similar influence to me mm-hmm. i i certainly saw that but then i also saw a lot of christian imagery the fact that they are living in a church practically she's praying to the gods in a very kind of christian manner so it sort of suggested a little bit of a later period maybe maybe 12th or 13th century also the costuming 
felt very similar to the movie Braveheart, which is around the 13th, 14th century. So I kind of placed it in that era. Also, I was looking into Scottish history in regards to Christianity. And I mean, it did have an influence during that time. But it never, I agree with you, it never really set a defined institution on the movie. It definitely played with both. And I think mm-hmm. that's very true to Scottish history too. They don't, they didn't really define themselves either way. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was sort of where I placed the film. But, and it definitely felt like a historical film with, with the costuming and with the colors and the war paint and even some of the, the titles felt kind of his, uh, an historical representation of, of a film. So that's mm-hmm. certainly where it landed for me. You're talking about at the beginning where they give yeah. the scrolling title with titles with information about what's going on and mm-hmm. in the, in the kingdom and yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Right. Sort of like a, sort of like a war serial mm-hmm. minus yeah. the voiceover. Yeah. Kind, yeah. Like almost, almost reminiscent of like the opening crawl to another film I saw over the holidays, uh, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're entering, you're entering this ongoing conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that the costuming lent itself to a more Christian influence setting. Like you see St. Andrew's cross is a blaze that's in some of the sashes that they wear that signify titles. And certainly in some of those scenes at the, at the Macbeth's church or chapel or what have you, like, Marion Cotillard is sort of framed or colored in a way that suggests like uh, the Virgin Mary to me. I might be going yeah. completely yeah. out on a loop, but I think in one of those scenes she's in, she has like blues and whites, which is very reminiscent yes. of the iconography mm-hmm. that, that you'd see like a Mary, Mary as the Madonna or Mary as Queen of Heaven mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would be, would be portrayed in a similar coloring. So, oh yeah, there's, there's some interesting crossover there definitely suggests a very um very liminal Scotland. Well, it's kind of funny I guess to me to some degree that you're that if if what they're doing is actually accurate to like Scottish history in part because so it's a film that's directed by an Australian director and yeah. doesn't star like anybody Scottish. It's got Michael Fassbender who's Irish yeah. and Marianne Cotillard who's French and then mm-hmm. like Patty Considine who's it's got a lot of Irish people like Banquo is Irish yeah. Malcolm is Irish yeah. and uh, and David Thewlis is English I believe English. yeah I think that's right I'm not sure where from England he's from but yeah not a lot of Scottish people in the Scottish film yeah mm-hmm. so the opening scene is also the first time we see the witches which is at least like, at least they haven't added any kind of text because the first thing we hear is, in fact, the first lines of the play. When yeah. shall we three meet again? When shall we three meet again? <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing. There's, yeah. there's more than three. Yeah, there's four. There's four. And a, pl- and a little girl, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's like a, there's a baby there's at some point, right? They're holding a baby yeah. sometimes, and then there's the, the little girl. So yeah, there there aren't three to begin with. No. Right. And I know some like a conjecture that Shakespeare's scholars sometimes make is that like the three weird sisters are connected in some way to like uh the Celtic Morrigan 
or oh. the Hellenic fates, or even like the Norse. Uh, uh, I can't remember. There's like triple, triple feminine deities sort of recur in European culture. And here, like, there's there's the idea of, like, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And here they all are, like, roughly the same age, except for the two little girls and sometimes the baby. It's like... <laughs> so Kurzel's evoking this pagan idea, but also um, subverting it with babies. One, you can't, also- tell who's, can't tell whose children are whose, because they all look sort of the, like the same person. Yeah. And, and, in, and yeah, I felt like the baby... I, I don't know. I read it like this, that it was the baby that was, that died at the beginning. Like, I they were thought trying about to mirror it, mirror it constantly. Was it a baby though at the beginning? It seemed like, or was it a small child? I think it was a small, it was like a toddler. Like it was a one, okay. one and a half year old. Okay. And, and the reason why I say that is because it appears later with, uh, Lady mm. M. And, um, so oh. there were, there was, there was all these image, these kind of mirroring of this, lost child and it's interesting because i think in the in the shakespearean text the three weird sisters are much more like a a sense of like primal or faded chaos but in this film Mm -hmm. it suggests like there's some connection between bloodshed and fecundity because you have all these you have the you have the little baby Mm -hmm. keeps appearing and it doesn't i don't know how to make sense of it. When Macbeth also has visions of them on the battlefield where it seems it's not clear if they're there or if he's seeing warriors that he's then interpreting as the weird sisters. They certainly felt in this film more of an apparition than, than witches. Yes. And, and that was a problem. I mean, they're witches. I mean, I wanted to see witches. You know what I mean? I didn't want to see Mm -hmm. ghosts. Like they're not ghosts, (laughs) you know, but they felt like ghosts. Yeah, or even potentially, like, figments of his imagination. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Although, uh, at the beginning, though, was it Malcolm? No, not Malcolm. Banquo. Uh, Banquo does see them. Banquo sees them. So that's why they weren't apparitions. Right. But at certain moments, they kind of were because they only did appear to Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I think, we see sort of immediately one of one of the issues with the film's yeah. thematic scheme like bringing in a lot of uh, contemporary ideas about psychology doesn't always gel so well with jacobian ideas of the supernatural I and mean, they, Kersel- they cut all of the references to the supernatural mm-hmm. yes there is no spells there is no cauldron they don't talk about familiars or about anything magical they they just seem to like be, I don't know, homeless and living in the middle, yeah. living in fields. Kind of We're harbingers like of doom. They kind of felt like gypsies a little bit. Oh, that's a good way of thinking of it. Yeah. That's kind of how I saw them. And yeah. they would just sort of vanish with the fog into the fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you. Yeah, do they you were think... kind of the impending doom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that fog, which is like the main natural element in the movie. You have fog and rain. I mean, that is mentioned. Now I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which definitely in the text talks about, uh, oh, so fair and foul a day I have not seen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That line appears in the film. Yes. That's one of the, Mm -hmm. yes. Okay. So maybe, uh, I just, I just don't know. 
I keep thinking about how Macbeth is sort of like a proto-Gothic drama, and a lot of that is spun in completely the opposite direction in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like you have you have ghosts and uh, spectral daggers and chanting witches and like all of that is very much secondary to the framing and the just the the vast yeah. landscapes upon which we see small yeah. people. Like I think the the historical context in which the play was written is sort of not. I don't know if they just will are willfully ignoring it or just didn't know about it because the witches are, if you're looking at it just from that perspective, the witches are quite important because the new king was super into witchcraft and like wrote treatises on witchcraft mm-hmm. and had all kinds of obsessions with it. And so it's not a coincidence that Shakespeare suddenly put together a play that was about witches um, yeah, and uh, you were going to say something else that I cut you off when you were talking about Jacobian theater. Oh, I, yeah, I was just going to mention Jacobian theater, of course, a reference to the king you just mentioned, King James I of England, who was also James Stuart VI of Scotland, first right. king to rule Scotland and England together by right of inheritance. And so right. when he ascends to the throne, you sort of see a shift in the emphasis of the Shakespearean theater and mm-hmm. other playwrights of the day, uh, emphasizing some more supernatural elements. Like Macbeth is all about witches. I'm trying to remember. There's, ah, uh, what is his name? Anyway, well, there's, there's other plays that reference like lycanthropy and mm. other folk beliefs that then like sort of start to create this new like, proto-Gothic body of literature on the stage. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is that, so they started taxing the the theaters for if you did a play with any kind of swearing, which is why there's no zoons or splud in Macbeth, because they would have been taxed for it. And it also seemed to have led to, like, much more secular texts, because there isn't really, I mean, not in the way it this film is done, but in the text of Macbeth, there is not this, it's more witchcraft than it is religion. Mm-hmm. I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. This felt like the director was putting an undertone of, of religion rather than witchcraft in this film. Very mm-hmm. much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. The, the play I was trying to remember about lycanthropes, and incest is called uh, the Duchess of Malfi, and that's by oh, yeah, 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 Jacobian yeah. Jacobian playwright John Webster. Yes, right. Which I yeah I think of as sort of akin to Macbeth in that there's a there's a major supernatural element. There's a lot of deaths by stabbing, and like the main the main protagonist is continually like going mad throughout the play. Which also ends like with a big with a big moral lesson about um basically don't don't stab people, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, after the first scene there's the the titles scrolling titles that we were talking about, and then it opens on the battlefield, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Broadswords drawn, paint and down the forehead and eyes. Yeah. yeah. Stripes. The three war paint stripes, yeah. And there's, like, a lot of young boys there, too, which they're preparing for, like, their first battle. 
mm-hmm. and last <laughs> in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So we, yeah, definitely see this very um, brutal and barbaric, but strangely like noble and sporting warfare because they all basically just line up in a very wide line and smash into each other, as I recall. Well, yeah. not quite, because they move in slow motion. Oh, yes, slow of motion. course. And then there's like a really, really, really loud crash as the all the weapons hit when it moves back to regular time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think the atmospheric sounds take the place of the text for a lot of the movie. Yes, and yeah. you definitely see that here with uh, again a battle. That in the Shakespearean text is sort of delivered in the form of a message. You don't ever see it happen yeah, on yes. screen. Yeah. Well, on on stage, I should say. And here it is the second major sequence. Yeah. This big broadsword battle. Well, and there's a long sequence even before that of them preparing for battle, and then there's yeah. the battle, and then there's like cleaning up after the battle and burying the dead. There's a lot of added. Yeah. Burying and, and burning the dead, more burning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think, and then during part of that, you have some of the lines that would have been delivered in place of actually showing the battle shown as voiceover. I, I couldn't figure out who that character was that kept giving like, voiceover yeah. who became the, who kind of like they, be, they turned him into sort of like a chorus. Yes, exactly. Which the play never had, but no, it just, kept having voiceover with him filling in blanks and occasionally the camera would actually look at him and they just created a chorus randomly Which out of nowhere. Interesting. Did you say that Donna be- Bain wasn't in this per- in this film? Maybe it was Donna Bain. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I don't know yeah, who no, those were. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that that sort of choral figure, which is interesting because of all, all the ways that it departs from Shakespearean and Jacobian theater, and yet you have structurally something that's very um, Greco-Roman tragedian. Although, of course, if it was a proper course, you wouldn't see any of the battle that's happening in slow motion either. But yeah, right. Yeah. Well, but it's interesting. I thought it was. I thought it was an interesting framing choice for sure. It's sort of weird to add a course though for a play that's like so tight and that yes. it doesn't even ha- it doesn't have extraneous characters or no subplots. It's all no. just Macbeth. I mean, there's the brief time where we cut to the preparations for battle in England, but other than that, it's basically just the Macbeth plotline. And yeah, even that's just about his the preparations to get to the battle that he's going to participate in. It seems kind of weird to add in chorus to me. It was really weird. And I also felt, just going back to the battle and, and the preparation for it, I mean, I've never seen a Shakespeare film adaptation with so much silence in it. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. the use of, of real sounds and, and no text whatsoever was really, it was, that was a really big departure as well. And yeah, I didn't like the, I didn't like this chorus aspect. I was confused. I didn't know who it was. I wanted to know who it was. Yeah. And I thought it took me out of the film, actually. Hmm. Yeah. It's, so I saw the film twice and the first time I didn't even really notice that it was a chorus. I was just like, Oh, it's kind of neat that they've taken the dialogue that would have described the battle and used it as voiceover for the battle. And then the second mm-hmm. time I was like, why do they keep showing us this guy? Who is he? What's, the, who is this character? What's going on? And I had the same, the same problem with it. He and doesn't, he doesn't happen to die. Does he? I don't, 
No, because he's no, alive no, because because in my mind I was about I was about to suggest like maybe he's another like similar to the way that like Macbeth has his little surrogate son. Maybe he's Duncan's son, but that that's not right. No. Yeah, he's I just don't think so. the, he's just a narrator. Yeah, yeah, I'm guessing they gave him lines from other people too that it wasn't even. Mm-hmm. No, they did. They, they definitely did. Okay. Yeah, they definitely did. And I guess we, going back to the battle scenes. And the sound, I think the silence too, the, cause they do actually cut out the sound, which, like, I know you just mean the part, you meant by silence that they don't have dialogue, but there but are. I also mean, I also mean moments of silence as well. Yeah, moments of silence. Like when they yeah. go into the slow motion, they actually cut out all of the sound. And then mm-hmm. it gets really loud afterwards. And I feel like, I mean, I thought that the way they use sound in the film was really effective and, but I think you're also right that they kind of used it instead of dialogue. Yeah. Like the, the film has sort of some of the same problems as text that Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing has. And I kind of, I watched that one with the audio commentary on. So it was like effectively silent and I liked it a lot better when I couldn't hear it. I think you, but you couldn't listen, to, you couldn't watch Cur- this film on mute. Like you would miss a lot. No. Even if, even if the dialogue is badly delivered, you would miss a lot of the sound texture from, Mm-hmm. Of whether it's like the wind or the swords or the, the rain, the, the rain, the, the, the rain, the rain, <laughs> the raining, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of wind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, they were constantly playing with elements, like they were playing with fire, they were playing with water, they were playing with earth, you know, like the ele- and wind, and they were playing with the air. They were playing with all the elements in this film. And kind of in a more active way. I mean, I liked seeing the battle scenes done, actually, to be honest with you. Yeah. And also, like, seeing other aspects of the film that you never see active. Yeah. So that was really compelling to watch. Yeah. No, I agree. And this seems to be sort of a new trend. I don't know. You you might know more about this than I do, Laura. But because I know Kenneth Branagh did a production of Macbeth that they broadcast to cinemas through National Theatre Live that was co-directed by Rob Ashford and starred Kenneth Branagh. I don't know if it was really horrible, if the recording was really horrible. The recording was really horrible anyway. And it was it was done in a consecrated church on a, like with a really, really long stage, long, thin stage. And they filled okay. the stage with, with dirt. And it was very, they got, it got muddy and wet. And dirty, and they did a lot of fighting. I had no idea what was going on. Most of the time, I was like, "Who's the ghost?" That's Banquo. Who's Banquo? That's how good it was. But it was the same sort of like, "Oh, Macbeth, we can have lots of fun war scenes, and people will be entertained." I think this is a trend. I, was, I mean, yeah, yeah. I was going to just say, like, "Sleep No More" is a physical representation of Macbeth. I mean, mm. people are trying to make things more active to watch yeah. in a live theatrical sense. Mm-hmm. So new interpretations on how to do that seems to be the direction we're going. Yeah. Not necessarily the direction that's always the sound is. Sometimes me just seeing a production where I hear the text clearly and I hear mm-hmm. the story clearly is enough for me. I don't yeah. need all these other elements on it. But I think for somebody who's very well established, somebody like Kenneth Branagh, you know, I think he probably wants to try new ways to get audiences in and audiences mm-hmm. excited about the text again. So I think in, in some respect, this 
film adaptation is trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess sort of my thinking on the film adaptation is I like all of the things it's doing like that. It's just that, that then they ignore the text and I feel like that's not they okay. Should, they should have cast people who knew the text more. I do yeah. agree. Well, and yes. not only that, but they should have had like somebody on set who knew something about the text yes. so they could yes. tell them about the rhythms and maybe the director could have read a book on Shakespeare. Totally. <laughs> because he never, he said even in an interview, he, he never anticipated to direct a Shakespeare film. So it's I like, guess there's something excuse. about It's not an excuse, but at the same time, also the screenwriter should know too. I think the screenwriter should be both an expert and an interpreter of Shakespeare as well. And clearly they weren't, you know, so. And they didn't hire. I mean, the other thing is they didn't hire for the most part, they didn't hire actors with Shakespeare experience. No, they did not. And so when Kenneth Branagh did that on his much ado film, he actually had two people on set whose entire job was to help people with the text, which is why that is the best Shakespeare adaptation. ever. (laughs) Wait, so did, so did, Keanu just not consult with the diction expert. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not figured out what was going on with Keanu. I mean, it's a great performance that I love, but it's it's pretty bad. Totally, totally not not very theatrical. He was he was the loose chain. Saying. He was the loose the loose yeah. end in that chain. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Although because it depends, it was mostly prose, so it's not like he was getting the verse wrong, even if he was adding weird pauses. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Don John is an expositor, so he speaks very straightforwardly. You're right. But that's just like a totally different approach, I would I think, that like Ken Branagh had done had done much to do about nothing on stage and he got a bunch of people who knew their Shakespeare inside out, and even still he got had two people on set to make sure that everybody knew how to say the dialogue and yeah, exactly. and then the result is that is an incredibly lucid reading of the text. And then here it's like, like, it feels like they didn't even bother, like somebody didn't even read the text with annotations. And also, I should say, um, Emma Thompson did the adaptation of Much Do. So, I mean. No, oh. she, no, she, she didn't. didn't. She didn't. Did. Yeah. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. He did. It's a really interesting script because it's, he's pared down all of the speeches. So you have a speech that has like four jokes in it and he's picked one. Oh, and then every single line of dialogue has like a description of what the person is thinking and there's, or an action. And so it's, it's very much written like a, like tells you how to speak it and written like a screenplay. And it's very much an adaptation. It's not just like, Mm. here are the lines we decided to cut. It's like, Mm. here is how we're going to do it. And here's how we're going to shoot it. And this is what it's going to look like. And so that seems like a really clear, like he knew very clearly what he wanted out of it when he wrote that screenplay. And well, I'm glad that you clarified that because somebody gave me misinformation today. No, yeah. it's interesting hearing you talk about the way they blocked out Much Ado on the Brano film. Brings me back to one of my observations from watching this Cursal Macbeth. Mm-hmm. It felt at times almost like they were shooting from storyboards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. a very distinct <laughs> sense of like how the frame will look. Yeah. And what elements and colors are going to be inside it and how mm-hmm. the characters will be placed in relation to each other that almost supersedes dialogue in importance. I definitely felt that the visuals trumped the text. And I think we've kind of gone along these lines. But yeah, definitely every frame 
if you took a still shot of it, it would be a beautiful image, you know? And I, I didn't necessarily think that was a bad thing. I, but yeah, definitely, you know, it was, it was very deliberate. You know, he wanted, he wanted the shots to be really gorgeous or moody or invoke some sort of tone on the film. And that for me trumped the text for sure. And I mean, you can see it in the cuts that they decided to make in the text as well. Right. I think I would almost, I would be very interested to watch this film in the form of like a Tumblr gift set. Cause I think <laughs> yeah. that's almost yeah. the feeling that I got. Like it's a very yeah. excellently drawn film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the both what's, I guess, good about it and bad about it is, uh, is that fact. Because I felt with a lot of scenes that he had some idea of what tone he was trying to strike. Mm-hmm. And it was like, or, you know, where we're going to set it and why we're going to set it there. Um, and sort of in general what the scene was, but nothing about like the difference between the first beat and the 20th beat and where the scene was going. So to yeah. some degree, I feel, and so it was like the dialogue wasn't there and mostly it was so badly said that you couldn't really understand it anyway unless you already knew the text. I knew the text so I could understand it, but I felt the motivations were a bit muddled too. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I could understand it, but it just felt like a big blob. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I'd agree. Especially, um, you know, going through, uh, after, uh, once we do meet Lady M, you know, when she has her first scene with him, Lady M and, and Macros, you know, I didn't quite get a through line of what that scene was to both of them. I mean, it, it, it was sort of there, but it wasn't quite direct enough for me. Uh, what do you mean by that? I just mean, I got the sexual undertones yeah. of the scene, which is, I hate to say it, a pretty obvious way of playing it. Yeah. I've, I've, I've almost never <laughs> seen another version. I mean, I probably have on stage, but it just felt, I don't know, I just, I, again, Fassbender didn't quite give me any, he wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't convinced that he was taken in by her, per se. I could, I could, she somewhat convinced me, but he felt in almost in a haze, and maybe that's what the grief that he was going through or whatnot. It just didn't feel uh, really direct and connected, mm. or, it, and it also didn't make me feel like he fully made a decision, but maybe... That was Fassbender's take on the character that he was kind of wavering, you know. Yeah, I mean, I he, def- it- he definitely didn't sell the didn't sex sell that I think they were going no. for. No, he didn't. Uh, Unless they weren't going for sex, and I'm just confused. No, I well, think that they were. I think they were, but it just wasn't fully there. You know, it felt a bit muddled. Felt a bit, you know, wasn't quite defined enough for me. I mean, it felt. I guess to me, I thought on the one hand that the the idea behind it is that he's just like can't care about anything and yeah so she's like let's do this and he's like um okay Which and is, then it's not a very active choice to make as an actor that's the problem right but i think that's sort of that's kind of what his character is like throughout mm-hmm. i mean i think like ma made a really good point about the final battle scene with mcduff Mm-hmm. And he's like, Macbeth is about to kill Macduff, and then Macduff is like, oh, guess what? I'm not a woman born. And then Macbeth is suddenly like, oh, you're the one who's supposed to kill me? Okay, I guess I won't kill you. And then Macduff kills him. And it's mm-hmm. like, he just gives over to prophecy, he just gives over to the prophecy. He, 
he could have killed Macduff and changed his fate, but he, yeah. I mean, at that point, there's a bunch of reasons why he didn't do it. Like he's just given mm-hmm. up on living and he has nothing left to live for, mm-hmm. but he's also just, just not really actively making decisions. He just does what Lady Macbeth tells him to do or yeah. what he thinks he has to do. Like, Oh, they're coming out. Malcolm's coming. Malcolm and his army is coming. So I guess I better prepare my army, but it's not like he's really that, that he really seems to care that much. Yeah, no, he definitely was passive throughout the entire film, which for me is not an active, it's not an actor making choice. It's not a character yeah. making choices, I yeah. should say. Not necessarily the actor, the actor was making that choice, but it was, it was more the character, the representation of the character wasn't a fully active one. But yeah. he does make decisions, I mean, in the text. He yeah. does change and he does go through things. And, yeah, so I wondered if that was maybe just a conversation him and the director had, or yeah, you know, you can play all the shades, like you can play grief and you can play being passive and you can play making decision. You can play all the shades and a character. So for me, it was just kind of one shade, and yeah. that wasn't very interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think the whole movie was a little bit like that, like one shade. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. It was all, you know. Darkness yeah, and doom and fog. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And tone and, and moodiness and, yeah. And I think, and about your point about how they were playing that, their first scene between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and what, and for the sex, I think, like, part of why it doesn't work in the way one would expect it to work is because they're not dealing with the text the way it should be. Like, they should yeah. be finishing each other's lines and, like, it should exactly. be snappy. Yes. And instead yeah. they have this super slow, like, he says something yeah. and then they just stare at each other and then she says yeah. something and they stare at each other. And you get the, you get the, still the feeling of them connecting, but not of them like getting excited and getting like aroused by their plan. And it seems like, seems to me like part of like where they had sex is not that they were so excited that they just couldn't help themselves. It was more like Macbeth was, Oh, I don't know if I really want to kill Duncan. And then Lady Macbeth was like, okay, well, here, have sex with me, and then maybe you'll feel better, and maybe you'll go kill Duncan. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I mean, I agree with you. The text should be going back and forth, them finishing each other's sentences, them growing excited by their plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the text give you, gives you those clues in the yeah. way that it's written. Yeah, and there were just unnecessary pauses, maybe them trying to be sexy, maybe them <laughs> trying to kind of lay out their... Yeah objectives in the way that they wanted to, but it just didn't feel, it actually fell flat for me. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I also think that that was part of the choice is that they were not, because it seems like they're, the whole idea is that they're split apart by grief from the beginning and then they're sort of trying to keep it together and the plan is one of the way they, what one of the ways they do it and that's part of why you don't feel them connecting. But also mm-hmm. that's like not reading the text. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it could have worked, actually. It could have been really interesting, but it just because they didn't have a handle on the text, it, it fell flat, you know? Yeah. It's an interesting idea to bring that yeah, yeah. the grief of a child. Mm-hmm. And in certain cases, I mean, I guess we could talk about this now, but when Lady M has her speech of insanity, she's speaking it to her dead child, you know? Mm-hmm. Which, I, I mean, I love that speech, and I love certain... uh director's interpretations of that speech. I once saw a production where there was a white sheet on stage and she slowly began to bring it in and cover herself with it. And it was Mm. beautiful. 
you know, and, and so it was interesting to see, you know, what grief did to her mm-hmm. character and, and them trying to bring that theme back in the film. But, you know, it just, yeah, it, it, it could have been an idea that could have been fully realized, but it just wasn't mm-hmm. because they, they weren't able to play all the shades of, of the right. character. Yeah, well, and they made some weird choices with the out-out-down spot monologue. Like, yes, for yes. starters, you don't actually see her scrubbing. Yeah. Um, I guess she was maybe scrubbing before she gave it, but you, she's talking about out-out-down spot, but she's just sitting around doing nothing when she says mm-hmm. that. And then they also play that as it's all one long take that's done as a close-up. And is it, I think it's probably the longest uncut take in the film. And you mm-hmm. compare that with, say, how when Macbeth has that soliloquy about if it were done, it would be better to be done quickly. I'm not mm-hmm. quoting that right, but and when he has that, it's like cut. There's a lot of editing where we're mm-hmm. editing, to cutting to like close up, we're cutting to like medium shot, and cutting to yeah. the side of him and the front of him, and it's. I think that's probably intentional to like show how fragmented his mind is and how. Mm-hmm. Um, not clear it is, but I don't, but then she, when she goes nuts, like, why is she going nuts with a single uncut take? I don't yeah. know. I think yeah. to what you're saying, it def- the way uh, Cotillard chooses to portray Lady Macbeth definitely lacks that that antic disposition Yes, that yes. is so present, like, in the play. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she, I'm thinking again about the way they colored that um that take that's another one with a lot of blue and white and possibly even mm-hmm. some snow in the background when she's yeah, in chapel with yeah. the with the dead child and that that again reminds me of that marian imagery that i think they might be trying to evoke and um just listening to the two of you discuss the staging and the the tone of the the first meeting between macbeth and lady macbeth I'm gonna go left field a little bit, maybe, okay. and talk about like another recent like contemporary sex scene in pseudo medieval entertainment that I'm reminded of as we talk about this. Um, so there is a scene in a recent season of Game of Thrones where um Jamie and Cersei Lannister meet again at Kick's Landing after their son King Joffrey has died, and so like. In this um, religious crypt where, like, their son is laid out with stones on his eyes, pagan style, like, um, like the Macbeth's child, they, um, have dubiously consensual sex. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of discussion on the internet about the way we ought to interpret that scene. And I think, yeah, there's a similar confusion of chemistry and signals. Mm. that's being sent by the acting and by the way um that scene very similar to this scene in Macbeth is an adaptation of a very suggestive sexual scene on the page of George R.R. R. Martin's book so um yeah just thinking more about I don't I don't want to say Kersel's influenced by Game of Thrones but I think it's a very interesting um juxtaposition of doubles there because you've got a lot of the same a lot of the same ideas Mm. and i think a lot of the same failings because of the way that we're interpreting sex 
that's on the screen right now mm-hmm. in medieval storytelling. The other thing that I hadn't really thought about the first time I saw it, but the second time is it's interesting that they show them having sex because then when they're later in the, in the palace, now that they're king and they have that scene where Macbeth is talking about how they need to kill Banquo and how, you know, they've, it's a barren marriage and actually sticks his dagger at her stomach to be like, you can't have children, which kind of resonated even as like even meaner almost in the second time Mm -hmm. I saw it because, because we saw them have sex and there was no child afterwards. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yeah. Lots of daggers and wombs in this movie for sure. Yeah, I saw that moment as very, very mean and it was, it was more pointed. No pun intended with the dagger. Pointed. But, um, but I mean, it, you know, again, this, this theme of the lost child mm-hmm. made it even more resonate that mm-hmm. moment. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't fully connect to it though. Yeah. I know we sort of were talking a bit before about the unsex me now speech and how that's yes. kind of done in a church, which is mm-hmm. an interesting choice. Did you want to talk about yeah. that a bit? Yeah, I think I, it's one of my favorite speeches. I mean, she's calling on the gods to make her less uh, emotional and less mm-hmm. like a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unsex me now, you know. I want to be a man. I want to be a yeah. man in this situation, and I want to be able to do this fully. Because she yeah. she reads the letter. She she knows what's going to happen. She she wants to be queen. She wants. Well, and in this, she also has the sash that's the Thane of Cawdor's sash that's been yeah. moved around. Yeah. So she clearly wants to go through with this. So she. She calls on the gods within this church, and I feel it was to heighten the speech uh, even more so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking to that. It's interesting, though, because it's a very unchristian prayer. So that <laughs> felt very pagan to me. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there, which is kind of funny because she's surrounded by crosses. Yeah. And is herself, again, like framed kind of like a Madonna without yeah. child. Yeah. Doesn't she have a hood in that scene? She's wearing her cloak. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very reminiscent of Marian iconography. Yeah. And I wonder, I have questions about that too. I mean, I kind of wonder, is this, is this also playing into the fact that she can have children? Is that sort of connection to Mary even more prevalent because Mary wasn't give, like Mary was a virgin? And I, you know, I, I think about that a lot. In terms of what she, what she's trying, what they're trying to represent with that speech, this is a mix. It's a mix of different things, but yet, yeah, there's definitely Christian undertones to it mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like we noted earlier, there's a lot of the pagan influence at the beginning, and then there's this Christian thread interwoven. Makes me wonder, um, cause I, yeah, the, the unsexy speech given in the presence of a lot of crosses mm-hmm. and candles. So are we, are we seeing Lady Macbeth as sort of an inverse Mary, whereas like Mary gives birth to this victim mm-hmm. of violence who like redeems the world and brings people together. Whereas, uh, Lady Macbeth like gives birth in a typographical sense to like more violence. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, to like the devil or she's giving it, she's selling her soul out to mm. the devil or whatnot. And she yeah. can't There's give like, birth, and equally she can't give birth to the heir who's going to yeah. be, become king. That's because yeah. Banquo's son is going to, sons will be king. I mean, the other thing too that I thought was interesting about it being said in a church is it gives you sort of different ways of interpreting that speech. Like I would have never thought of it as obviously what it is. If you just read the text, what it's about is, as you were saying, Laura, that, you know, she wants to be more masculine and like a man. Mm-hmm. But given the context of the, the, the way that we actually see them having sex and how it's about, we see their dead child and we see him accusing her and pointing at her womb about not having children, mm-hmm. that it almost seems like she's asking to become barren. I know. And then that she was- gets her wish. And then it, that's sort of like, oops, mm-hmm. that was a mistake because it would have been yeah. useful to produce an heir afterwards. I know you, you wrote that and I thought, no, 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 that's not what the text means at all. And then I thought, oh no, maybe that's what the filmmaker thought it meant. And oh, I mean, that was really, I that. yeah, I was, I was, like, <laughs> I I was like, like, maybe they just didn't understand the text. Yeah. I, I thought maybe, yeah, maybe they didn't understand the text and maybe that's what, how they interpret it. And I, I was not into that, you know? I mean, I guess it could have meant both things. It could have meant both things, but to the director, I mean, not to me. I know what it means to me, but um, but to the director, it could have meant like both dual purposes. But I, I, yeah, again, like I, I think you're actually probably right that probably. I mean, I guess I was giving him too much credit. (laughs) You're probably right that they just didn't know that that's what it was about because when you. Like Lady Macbeth, she once she moves up in status, she becomes more mm-hmm. feminine. She gets more she feminine. These, like, yeah. Fancy hair and this, yeah. these fancy yeah. gowns and this fancy eye makeup. Like mm-hmm. she has, there's nothing. She becomes less and less masculine, and she's you know she's with this running the choir of children, which is like very mother like motherly, and there's really very little about her that's masculine, including the fact that she very quickly goes from. Being the one masterminding the plan to being the one, being totally disgusted by what Macbeth has turned into. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she, she starts to cry when she sees the children being burned at the stake. I mean, it was very evoking. Yeah. And, and kind of makes her turn the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a weird thing because she kind of starts out really plain at the beginning of the film, almost, yeah, just so plain. And then she, uh, she, moves up in rank, she becomes more effeminate and more glamorized. And uh, even at the end, I mean, her giving that speech to her child is a very feminine and very mm-hmm. female journey, you know? Yeah. That kind of, it, it goes against what play was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, as, it's not even as if, you know, during the banquet scene, she's wearing like all white, like it's very effeminate. You know, she could have worn like red or something very powerful and bold, but she does yeah. not. The costuming even suggests that she was very, she, almost delicate, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, in this, because I guess a lot of the time people talk about, you know, Lady Macbeth can easily upstage Macbeth because she's such a powerhouse. Yeah. And there is no danger of that in no. this, in this film. And I mean, certainly, it, it you see it in the cuts too. A lot of her speeches are cut. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of their discuss- their lines together are cut too. Yeah, he wanted her to be a secondary character rather than he wanted Fassbender and 
Macbeth to be the central focus. Which also has some kind of funny consequences because then you, I think you actually see Macbeth with Banquo a lot more than you see him yeah. with his life. Yeah, it, which was interesting. I actually, I mean, I don't know what you two thought about Banquo, Banquo but he definitely was more prevalent in this film. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of the character that I forgot about, to be honest with you, reading mm-hmm. the play. And then when you see him on screen, I, I thought, oh, no, he's actually kind of Macbeth's right-hand man. You know? yeah. yeah, well, you see you see Macbeth and Banquo lying next to each other, not mm-hmm. in a not in a sleep with each other sense, but they sleep <laughs> together before you even meet a vocal and active Lady Macbeth. So, yeah. Right. And they share there's a, a lot of... of there's a lot of um, male-male relationships in this right. movie. And that I mean, are different in ways from I, uh, the way that they're necessarily like presented in the text. I think, I mean, they really have, I, I mean, I really liked Banco and I liked what they did with him in this because mm-hmm. I thought they really, really effectively established his relationship with Mac- Macbeth. And like you said, that he's his right hand man by having a lot of two shots with them by having, yeah, mm-hmm. get your right hand man back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Duncan um, was outgunned and outmanned, outnumbered <laughs> and outplanned. <laughs> and Macbeth got in the room where it happens, so. Yeah. Except apparently nothing happens when you're a king. You just sit around. Anyway. I'm wait to die. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Next part of this discussion will be available to download on Monday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. 